trigger warning, listener discretion is advised. Dear listeners, before we proceed with our podcast tonight, we want to provide a trigger warning. This episode contains adult content and sensitive discussions about topics such as murder, sexual abuse, and other heinous acts. We understand that these subjects may be distressing to some individuals. If you feel uncomfortable or emotionally impacted by such content, we urge you to prioritize your well-being. It's okay to take a break from the episode or skip it altogether. Your mental and emotional health are of utmost importance to us. If you do decide to continue listening, please be aware that the discussions may evoke strong emotions. We encourage you to reach out to friends, family, or professional support if you need someone to talk to after listening. Thank you for your understanding and we appreciate your continued support. Nigeria, where the line between ancient rituals and modern life can be hard to perceive, a chilling tale of darkness and desperation emerges. It begins with a gruesome discovery that would haunt the collective memory of two nations for two long decades. Over 20 years ago, on the banks of the Serene River Thames in the heart of London, an unimaginable horror was uncovered. September 21st, 2001 marked the day when a dismembered body was found near the iconic Tower Bridge wearing nothing but a pair of orange girls shorts. It was not the gruesome sight alone that sent shivers down spines. It was the eerie presence of voodoo symbols that enveloped the remains. The victim was a young boy somewhere between the tender ages of four and seven yet his real name remained a mystery. He was christened Boy Adam, a somber homage to the biblical Adam, the innocent soul in the Garden of Eden. Like Adam, the boy's innocence had been brutally shattered. Forensic examinations revealed a grim tale of suffering. Boy Adam had been poisoned, his throat surgically slit to drain his blood meticulously. His limbs and head had suffered the same clinical brutality as if this was the work of a skilled butcher. But it didn't end there. Traces of minerals in his stomach and bones hinted at a journey that led him from Nigeria, possibly via Germany, to this gruesome fate on the banks of the River Thames. In the early stages of the investigation, police did not release much information. They believed that this was more than just a murder, that it was possibly a ritualistic sacrifice steeped in dark magic. Yet despite their tireless efforts and journeys to Southern Africa in search of answers, the motives behind Boy Adam's murder remained obscured. In the pursuit of the truth, even the revered Nelson Mandela lent his voice to the cause, hoping to unlock the secrets hidden in the shadows of voodoo ritual sacrifices known as Muti. Adam's story gripped the country, but the reality is that this was far from the first example. Throughout the 80s, there was a sharp rise in bodies found on the Thames. The Moody murders were caused for such alarm that Scotland Yard formed a task force to investigate the spike in victims washing up. 
The vast majority of the victims were found in the same condition. All that was left of most of them was their torso. No limbs, no genitals, no head. 20 years on, the Met Police would ultimately issue a solemn statement acknowledging that Boy Adam's death might have been a ritualistic killing, but the true reasons remained unknown. Just a year before Boy Adam was found, in South Africa, three clay pots were found at a witch doctor's house. Two of them contained entire skulls. The third contained multiple fragments of body parts in what appeared to be some sort of magical concoction of herbs, leaves, hand bones, and human tongue. It is believed that the vessels were the products of what amounts to a voodoo shaman of sorts created to ward off or bring forth evil. The human remains, much like the boy Adam, will remain forever unidentifiable. Move forward to 2012 in Benin, West Africa, over 100 graves are found disinterred and looted. The reason? Voodoo rituals. Before this, Benin was considered the voodoo capital of the world. To some degree, this was nothing new. Most of what was believed to be missing from the graves was assumed to have been sold off and used in various voodoo spiritual rituals. But beyond the tragic tale of Boy Adam, the clay pot victims, and grave robbing in Benin lay a broader question. How many such stories remain buried in the crypts of ritualistic practices, blood oaths, and dark magic in Africa? What and who is responsible for these atrocities? To truly understand this, we must start by dissecting the ritualistic practices of the Moody murders and the underlying religious beliefs driving these rituals. In South Africa, rare but disturbing incidents involve murders carried out to obtain human body parts for traditional medical practices known as Moody. Similar practices involving human body parts in rituals have been reported worldwide including among Caribbean immigrants in the United States. While some cases receive media attention, formal reports or scientific studies on these occurrences are infrequent. Historically, such cases often targeted children with perpetrators focusing on hands, feet, and genitalia for their supposed medicinal properties. Recent reports indicate a shift towards targeting adults and even theft of body parts from medical schools. Ritual murders are typically carried out by groups with shared interests, often related to business partnerships. Victims are chosen based on qualities deemed necessary for the group's advancement, whatever that may mean. What makes these cases particularly disturbing is that body parts are removed while the victim is alive, causing intense pain to summon supernatural forces that supposedly work for the group's benefit. Despite their brutality, these acts are viewed as structured rituals rather than malicious acts, sometimes seen as serving the common good of the community. This unique phenomenon may have deep ancient roots, but information about its ritual significance is challenging to obtain. 
What is known is that these ritual events are steeped in black magic and old African religious beliefs. Most know these beliefs and practices as voodoo. Typically, our understanding in the West of voodoo comes from American stories of the Deep South. Steeped in mystery, ask most people what voodoo is and you will receive a half response referencing black magic, hexes, and dolls. But the truth is much more complicated than that. Voodoo is a spiritual and religious tradition that originated in the regions of West Africa, particularly among the Fon and Awe people in what is now Benin, Togo, and parts of Nigeria. It is essential to emphasize that voodoo is a term commonly used in the West, while vodun or vodou is often preferred by practitioners in Africa and the Caribbean. The belief system is characterized by its syncretic nature, blending elements of indigenous African religions, Christianity, and indigenous animistic practices. Voodoo centers around the veneration of spirits or deities, which play a central role in the lives of its adherents. Rituals and magic are integral components of voodoo. They play a central role in connecting practitioners with the spirit world. One of the most iconic elements of voodoo is the voodoo altar, where practitioners create a sacred space to communicate with the spirits. The altar is adorned with symbolic items such as candles, sacred herbs, skulls, and offerings like fruits and liquor. These altars serve as portals between the physical and spiritual realms. Voodoo rituals involve invoking specific spirits or deities for guidance protection or assistance in various aspects of life. To do this, a practitioner may light a candle and offer a small gift or libation as a sign of respect and request assistance from a specific spirit. The spirits are believed to possess individuals during these rituals leading to states of trance and possession where they can communicate with the living and offer guidance. Voodoo practitioners often use spells and charms to influence events or protect themselves from harm. Small cloth pouches filled with herbs, roots, stones, and other magical ingredients are often crafted for a specific purpose such as love, protection, or healing. For example, a love spell may involve creating a specific bag with items like rose petals, a lock of hair, and a piece of the intended lover's clothing. These bags are believed to harness the power of the spirits and can be carried or hidden to bring about the desired outcome. The music one might associate with voodoo is no accident. Rhythmic drumming and dance are vital components of voodoo ceremonies. The beat of the drums is thought to serve as a conduit for the spirits to enter the ritual space. Dancers often enter a trance-like state as they move to the music, allowing them to become vessels for the spirits. This aspect of voodoo is visually captivating and spiritually charged, creating a powerful and immersive experience for practitioners and observers alike. 
Sacrifice is another distinctive element in voodoo rituals. Offerings of food, animals, or even humans are made to the spirits as a sign of respect and gratitude. The choice and the manner of sacrifice are determined by the specific spirits being honored. In some cases, the consumption of the sacrifice afterward is seen as a form of communion with the spirits. Voodoo practitioners often draw intricate symbols on the ground during rituals. These symbols are believed to serve as gateways for the spirits and are used to invoke and honor specific spirits. Each is unique to a particular spirit and is created using powders, ashes, or even cornmeal. They are a visual representation of the spirits present and are an integral part of Voodoo's magical and symbolic language. To provide historical context, it's crucial to explore the roots of Voodoo in West Africa. The Fon people of the Kingdom of Dahomey, now Benin, were instrumental in shaping Voodoo's early development. They believed in a pantheon of deities, each associated with various aspects of life, such as the god of thunder, the god of fertility, or the god of the sea. These deities were believed to have the power to influence human affairs and rituals and ceremonies were conducted to communicate with and appease them. For example, the annual Fawn Festival of the Ancestors pays homage to deceased family members and venerated ancestral spirits. Many Africans who were forcibly transported to the Americas carry their cultural and religious practices with them. In the Caribbean, especially in Haiti, voodoo became a central element of the resistance to slavery and colonial oppression. Leaders of the Haitian Revolution drew inspiration from voodoo rituals and beliefs to unite enslaved Africans in their fight for freedom. This culminated in Haiti's independence in 1804 and is a remarkable example of voodoo's historical impact on social and political change. Today, voodoo continues to thrive in various forms in West Africa, the Caribbean, and other communities around the world. In Benin, for instance, it is recognized as an official religion and practitioners celebrate annual festivals to honor their deities. In the Caribbean, it remains a vital aspect of cultural identity with ceremonies, rituals, and celebrations often blending indigenous African traditions with elements of Catholicism. But what about the human remains, the grave robbers, and the boy Adam? Could they possibly be the victims of some macabre ritualistic practice? Could this really be transpiring in the 21st century? Thirteen long and haunting years had passed since the discovery of Boy Adam's remains on the banks of the Thames and the mystery had never been fully unraveled. But life continued its relentless march. Yet darkness has a way of returning when least expected. <laughs> It began with the rumblings among motorcycle taxi riders, a tight-knit community who traversed the city's labyrinth streets. 
Some of their fellow riders had gone missing, disappearing into thin air, leaving nothing but a void that sent shivers down their collective spine. You know, I feel that dropping this other person at Sokai, I would not be the only person that would not ride back to his house. And unfortunately, that was the last thing we saw of them. So on Saturday morning, they did not see them. They did not see the commercial motorcyclist. They did not see the person they had to escort him down so we learned that his family members, his relatives started looking for him and um, as they got towards this Okupa uh, uh, bridge, Okupa river bridge around uh, Sonyo, they now saw a commercial motorcycle, a motorcycle that was there under the bridge and they were now like, oh, could it be that they had an accident or something happened? So they saw the motorcycle and they alerted the police. And we went there, our policemen went there from Sonyo Division, recovered the motorcycle and then assisted them to, to look around for the uh, missing persons. Fear gnawed at their hearts and they raised the alarm, desperate for answers. Suspicion hung heavy in the air and their concerns were far from unfounded. As the authority in Nigeria's third largest city swung into action, the grim truth slowly emerged. A decrepit and forsaken building shrouded in an eerie veil of dread had become a house of horrors. It was a place where the very fabric of humanity had seemingly unraveled. When the police entered this nightmarish realm, the scene that unfolded before their eyes would haunt their dreams forever. Skeletal remains, decomposing bodies, Skulls and bones littered the blood-stained floors, telling a tale of unspeakable horror. Shackles lay scattered around, their cold, unforgiving grip having bound those who had met their grim fate within these walls. And, um, but by the time we got there, we met seven people there. And the seven people we met there, unfortunately, one of them dropped dead right on the spot. But it wasn't just the building that held grisly secrets. In the surrounding bushes, the police made another grisly discovery. Seven emaciated figures, barely resembling human beings, stood as living skeletons, a testament to the atrocities committed in this nightmarish place. One of them was so close to death that he actually died at the very moment he was found. Because they were emaciated, they were highly looking malnourished, and they were just like living skeletons. Some of the survivors told stories of rape and abuse. Women were forced to give birth to children that were sold off to traders. They were forced to watch their co-captors suffer the same fate. Body parts, passports, personal belongings from many more people than were present and countless pieces of evidence of the heinous acts committed were found. But on the search of the area, that was when we discovered that. There were dead bodies and lots of bones around with clothes, different pairs of shoes, bags, you know, in different, different containers. So at that instant, the police went into the matter and never since we investigated. A police spokesman, voice trembling with a mixture of disgust and determination, spoke of the harrowing scene. She explained how the motorbike riders, driven by the disappearance of their colleague under suspicious circumstances, had stumbled upon this macabre den of darkness. The 
valley of that area, the village and the community head of that area claimed that it's been there for long, but it did not know that such a thing is happening there. Indeed, observers knew such horrors were not isolated incidents. Kidnappings often concealed even darker secrets and had become a way of life. But other factors also played a role in the continued existence of this house of horrors. There are many reasons why locals may have kept quiet. In a land steeped in black magic and ritualistic ceremony, money still exists. Money is still a need, a means of providing for yourself and your family, and in some cases getting ahead in life. The infinite reach of capitalism had found its way deep into the forest, going deeper into the bush, further than many of its own inhabitants, and making the truth and sinister nature of this horrific event even more complicated. And at this point, it is probably prudent to discuss this further in the notes section. So for the notes. This is most certainly a body parts trade. The question is for what? There is certainly black magic going on here. There are certainly body parts being bought and sold for these ritualistic purposes. And that most certainly explains things like the grave robbing. But it doesn't completely explain the murders and kidnappings of living people. In recent years, there has been a disturbing surge in cases of organ trafficking across Africa and worldwide. This, of course, means organ trafficking, for the most part, for selling for transplants for other human beings. It encompasses a range of criminal activities from the illegal harvesting of these organs, both from living and deceased individuals, to their unlawful sell and transportation. Understanding this is essential to addressing the root causes and the devastating consequences of this organ trade, this body part trade. So trafficking in body parts and organs is not confined to Africa. It occurs worldwide due to the rise in increased transplant practices and inadequate regulations. However, it is quite prevalent in Africa and specifically in Nigeria and Nigerian medical experts and various stakeholders are raising concerns about the issue, considering it a severe threat to the lives of Nigerians, particularly women who may unknowingly sell their ovarian eggs due to lack of awareness and the ambiguity of certain legislation. Estimating the financial scale of all of this is a bit challenging because again, this is very clandestine. It happens in the shadows, but some suggest the trade's annual value ranges from about 840 million to almost 2 billion. It is estimated that there are about 12,000 illegal transplants, particularly kidneys each year with varying payments to donors ranging from hundreds of dollars to tens of thousands depending on the origin. Organ trafficking remains one of the least reported forms of trafficking worldwide, largely due to its clandestine nature and lack of awareness. Law enforcement agencies often struggle to combat the crime effectively. There are international organizations, governments and professional bodies take steps to counter this trafficking 
sanctions under certain programs, target individuals in organ trafficking. Organ trafficking in Africa is a clear violation of human rights. It needs urgent attention. The unintentional inclusion of provisions in international agreements that facilitate the crime have to be scrutinized. We have to get rid of the ambiguity of the law. It has to be an absolute known that this can't happen. And African leaders have to consider revising or withdrawing from treaties that inadvertently expose their citizens to this organ trafficking. This is part of an awareness collaboration and legal reforms are essential to help combat this. You also have to deal with the money aspect of this because in a lot of cases, this is not an unknown. The officials know somebody's getting paid. It's, it's a real, this is a real basic transaction that is occurring in a lot of these cases. It was also alleged that many officials knew about the forest horrors and did nothing about it. Uh, again, this is a recurring theme throughout these stories. Officials are playing some role in these atrocities, whether directly profiting off of the body parts trade, participating in rituals that require these body parts, or, you know, just turning a blind eye to a known element. The people entrusted to prevent this are unable or unwilling to do so. Change will be difficult. In some regions, as many as two-thirds of the population still believe in voodoo, and the population of poor, uneducated, and vulnerable exceeds that. A few things stood out about that story that was creepy. You know, we don't know much about Boy Adam, and we don't know about the body parts in the clay pots, and we don't know much about grave robbers and where those parts necessarily ended up. And, and what things were found but with the Ibadan forest it's just there was so much and the lack of structure in investigation and crime scene and everything just created a very hectic and just crazy situation it'd be like finding this house of horrors you know in your neighborhood and, and you just being able to walk in and out of the house and, and see things and do things you know dig around body parts and, and missing items. There was forensics were out the window almost immediately there. But some of the more shocking elements of this, this, you know, house of horrors and this forest of horrors was, well, first of all, the person dying on the spot, the police literally rolling up, searching through, finding these seven emaciated figures that were on death's door and the one of them was literally on death's story eight he died on the spot and that's just horrible to have come that close to freedom and just just die in the aftermath the community took matters into their own hands they attacked and beat various individuals that they believed to have a role in this somehow uh, most of the people that attacked were essentially homeless or vagrants. One particular homeless man was apparently found with three different human tongues. And that doesn't mean that they came from that forest directly. He could have gotten them from somewhere else. There's no telling exactly what it was. It did seem like this man had some issues with his mental abilities and capacities. It's hard to make that out. It does sound like maybe there was some beating that occurred, but it was perhaps stopped in time. 
Nonetheless, police were unsure as to whether or not these human tongues had come from the forest, whether or not these, this man had cut these tongues out himself, if he had purchased them from somebody else for some apparent religious ritual, it's, it's not known. There were a few stories like this of people being attacked and either having things or being accused of having things, whether it be items of clothing or actual body parts. Many people rushed the area immediately as it was discovered. Uh, they were desperately searching for their loved ones. And in one case, apparently somebody had found their dead family member by digging around the site. What was left of them, buried in a shallow grave, was hastily removed by the family members, thus removing any possibility for a forensic investigation. I think finally, the most spine-tingling aspect of this to me is that the motorcyclist that went missing at the beginning of the story and the reason that police and the community began searching had actually contacted his friends through text messaging of some sort. He had his telephone. Uh, that person was never found. This is because it turns out through the text messaging that he was underground the whole time he was messaging. He had been buried alive and was running out of air and the battery power on his phone was fading, but he continued to communicate until his phone died, giving his friends various information of everything he could remember about his surroundings before he had been buried. And because of him, this forest of horrors was discovered and at least some life was spared. Unfortunately, it is assumed that he died in the same spot that he called from, having been buried alive in a permanent cold grave. As we wrap up this episode, we want to invite you, our dedicated listeners, to be a part of the narrative. Your insights, thoughts, and perspectives are essential to fully unraveling the depths of these stories. We encourage you to join the conversation on Twitter at Podcast Heinous. That's at Podcast Heinous. Share your thoughts, theories, any extra details that you think deserve further exploration. There's always room to expand on the intricacies of these narratives. The story is far from over. Together, we continue to shed light on shadows and find the missing pieces that complete the puzzle. Thank you for joining us on this journey into the heart of true crime. Stay safe, stay curious, and stay tuned for more on our next episode.